Hello, my name is Chris Ryan. My name's Andy Greenwald. And we are the co-hosts of The Watch, a pop culture podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. We are on Mondays and Thursdays. We mostly talk about TV, movies, music, pop culture. Jeremy Renner, house flipping, the papacy, Reese Weatherspoon dancing at wedding videos. We used to talk about Kanye West. He's, he's in the like timeout corner right now, though. Never, ever talk about Christine Baranski. You can listen to The Watch on Mondays and Thursdays on SoundCloud, iTunes, anywhere you get podcasts. Subscribe now. And thanks for listening. It's a good hang. Hello and welcome to a special Channel 33 podcast. My name is Sean Fennessy. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Ringer, and I am joined today by Gore Verbinski, a filmmaker with a fascinating career. He's directed the first three films in the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, The Ring, the Oscar-winning Rango, and many others. Gore's new movie, a gothic thriller that explores paranoia, sickness, and some slithering things, is called A Cure for Wellness, and it's in theaters February 17th. It's quite an interesting movie, to say the least. Gore, thank you for being here with me. Thank you, Sean. Good to be here. Gore, can you describe your movie for listeners? Uh, not really. I mean, it's not, it's not immediately reducible. I mean, I think that's one of, you know, its challenges. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, I guess we were just exploring with the idea of taking a health spot, which is so tranquil and, and, and seemingly benign, and sort of corrupting that and, and saying, what if this was a place that didn't indeed make you well? One of the things that we've been talking about a lot, my producer and I, is how did you sell this movie to, to a studio? How did you present this idea and get them to say, yes, make this? Hypnosis. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, it's, um, this is not a, you know, it's not a major, it's New Regency, um, it's who have a distribution deal at Fox. So the people there were really supportive and, and willing to, to go for it. I mean, I'm not, never been accused of being risk averse. This was just, it felt like a good a good home for this movie. You've made a lot of big scale pictures. You've made a lot of unusual pictures. You, you tend to jump around genre-wise. Why did you decide to make this movie at this time? Uh, there's something about the genre that is appealing. I mean, there's sort of fundamentally two ways you tell a movie, I guess. There's the, the sort of hand on your back. You know, you're leading the audience through the darkened space. And then there's the kind of breadcrumbs, you know, uh, approach. And I think, um, particularly in the case of A Cure for Wellness, our, our protagonist is sort of uh, being summoned to this place in the Alps, this kind of ancient um, castle that has sort of been converted to a, to a wellness center but has its own dark past. And there's, uh, there's some, you know, as he makes that journey, he's kind of slipping out of the sort of waking state and into the sort of dream logic of this place. And and he, he's reluctantly becoming a patient at, at this facility. And really, you're observing him, uh, Dane DeHaan's character, Lockhart, become a patient. But you really, you're the patient, right? You're in the darkened room. And we're using sound and image and bringing all the tools to bear to, to perform a sort of psychological experiment on the audience. And I think that, that there's no other genre that allows you to kind of do that so so overtly. How do you think about health personally, and did that inform this choice to make this movie? Well, I, I certainly think we are vulnerable. There's something that you know we live in an increasingly irrational world, and and we we know history, but we're just sort of driving this car into the wall, and we 
can't seem to turn the wheel. And I think there's, I think there's a real sort of horror in that. And um, and I suppose you know, as I drink my kale smoothie, uh, <laughs> you know, whether it's whether it's that or or pharmaceutical advertisements, we must think something's wrong with us. Otherwise, we wouldn't. You know, if I asked you. When was the last time you slept well, or do your feet hurt? At some point, you're going to go, yeah, I have that. That's Both of those things are true uh, yeah, for me. Yeah, exactly. I have that, and you're kind of almost clutching onto it um, uh, as a, you know, and this place, you know, because it is sort of lotus eaters. The, the, the certainly the phase one of this place is that it's offering diagnosis almost as a form of absolution. Right? You have a note from your doctor. You're you're not well. You're not responsible because you're not well. Uh, I think that. That is quite appealing to, uh, you know, a particular type of, of person. Yeah, I think the notion of a, a wellness spa and the feeling of sort of perpetual illness feels very modern. But the palette that you use in the movie, the the way that the spa itself looks, feels trapped in a in a very specific time. And you know, through the course of the film, you identify that this is a centuries old concern that wealthy people have been traveling to remote places to get this sort of treatment for for for, for a long time. How did you go about building the world, how, what it looked like, what the colors were? Well, I, I always imagined it, as, you know, you start with who would be susceptible to this diagnosis. And, and you know, kind of it's a place that oligarchs and heads of industry might – I always imagined you could – if you went deeper into that steam room, Lockhart might bump into, you know, Dick Cheney and, <laughs> and, and, and with a towel wrapped around him sitting alone in the corner of the steam room. There's something about – um, conquest or, or, or achievement that has, you know, a cost and the bills come due. And, and that, uh, so the place itself becomes very much a character. Um, I scouted all over Germany, Austria, uh, Switzerland, Czech Republic, Romania, trying to find the perfect sort of castle that felt like it, you know, had a personality. And, uh, and the place, it, although it feels like one place, is actually multiple there's the castle, and then we found we, that worked for the exterior, but the interior didn't really work well. And we found this old hospital outside of Berlin that was um, where Hitler was actually uh, treated after, I think, mustard gas after World War One. So these places, and some old swimming pools, we found that were the tile kind of matched, and we were sort of collusion together all of these elements to make this feel like, just, you know, when you first arrive there, I think it has to be. It has to be wonderful, you know. We've made sort of Manhattan and you know a little dark, mm -hmm. and and this is sort of you know Lockhart sort of stepping into the light. Uh, yeah, as the film goes on and we go deeper into the bowels of the, yeah. the spa, you find it. You slip you know, back. It, it gets a little darker. It gets a little oh, bit. Yeah. The, the colors change just a little bit. Um, I'm curious if you watched any movies before you started this, and if you used anything as a frame of reference. Well, I think it's it's all language, so it's all in there. There, are, you know, there's some stuff from novels like Thomas Mann's *The Magic Mountain*. You know, comes to mind as I mentioned H.P. Lovecraft. You know, there 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 are movies um, from the late '60s and '70s like um, *The Servant* by Joseph Losey or or Polanski's *The Tenant* or *Don't Look Now*, uh, Jack Clayton's *The Innocents*. These these movies all have, and *The Shining*, of course, have a real sense of something inevitable. Is 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 there's almost an invisible force um, pulling the camera down the corridor, the protagonist towards uh, his epiphany, and uh, we just, you know, Justin Haith, the writer, and I, early on, were kind of experimenting. Well, what if that was disease? What if we 
What if we informed everything with a sense of there's a black spot on your x-ray or there's a cancer or there's some hidden force? And particularly when you have a protagonist that's in denial, I think, um, the, you, you want to have the film itself not be in denial. You know, it's like, no, we, we are going nowhere. We are present and we are a, a disease. We are, we are a sickness. What is your hope? about the way the movie will be received because I think that there is, I've seen described as one of the most unusual major film releases of the last 20 years in a good way. Is it that people are mortified, scandalized, excited? Well, I think it's really difficult to get people to get in a car and drive to a movie theater mm-hmm. these days. And that's why you see the eventizing of that experience because, you know, um, it is it is such a strange and you know we're repeating what the record industry did you know note for note and um, you can feel the sort of fabric tearing and you you know it's certainly a lot easier to get 150 million dollars to make a movie or eight than it is to get 38 you know that that middle is just gone so and I, and I think if you if you make something that's not immediately reducible it's even you know that's like that's even more difficult and then. So I just, you know, it's a, there are opportunities in the middle when everybody sort of runs away from the middle. I think there are opportunities there, but you do have to, you know, uh, be conscious of the fact that, yeah, we're not, you have, you have to try to convince people to, to remember what it was like to go to a movie and, and not know anything about what you were going to see. You know, quite often we've been to the theme park or we've played the video game or read the book or we understand the comic or the toy um, before we go in. And... Um, it's increasingly more and more difficult to to try to say come and and not know you know and and come with without any expectations. So when you start a movie like this, do you think it's going to be a long and grueling shoot? Do you do you does it take hundreds of days to make something because it is a very precise and specific not just tone but look and feel and scope? Even though we're talking about sort of that middle ground. Yeah, I think you put everything into any any. You better be able to answer the fundamental question, which is why do you have to tell this story before you set sail? Because you do not want to be forty days into an eighty-day shoot and 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 lose your your grip on the steering wheel. So, um, and then once you have that, once you know that, I think you will you know you're going to bleed for it every day. And so it is a sort of a tour of duty, or you know you. You submerge. I I do. I feel, I cannot like, you know. Everything else just gets put on hold. Mm-hmm. Literally everything because you're twenty four seven on on the film and uh, you just make it work. You know. You talked about that middle ground, that middle lane movie. You've obviously had a lot of experience with big IP projects with sequels. Was it important for you to not do something like that after the last five or six Sh- films? Sure. I think that's you know. It's cathartic in a, in a way to kind of return to the scale of the ring, let's say, or, or something like that. I remember making the second pirate movie, and the scariest thing was that the studio wasn't nervous. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It was like the first, you know, it's like okay, you're you're gonna you're gonna make a pirate movie. Those that will never work, you know. And so you you kind of go, yeah, that's what's so exciting about it. And then. There are notes and people panicked about, you know, Johnny's performance or this or that. And, you know, and then you're making a second one and they're just, you know, just keep doing that thing you're doing. We love it. You know, and you're and you kind of go, whoa, why am I really nervous now? Because 
um, because you're no longer on that boundary of the unknown. You know, you're no longer. And I think you know, that's what was great about Rango. It was like, okay, don't know how to make an animated movie. That makes it more exciting. Um, and I think with Cure for Wellness, it's like let's let's go to this this area where you don't see movies like this anymore. And let's um, so operating on that kind of seam, that outer boundary of like you're not quite sure this is going to work. Um, that's where you know that's where the juices flow. That's where you kind of get excited every morning, get up, and um, I don't know. It, 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 it's, it's what keeps me going. There's something very poetic about you releasing this movie in the same year that there is a Ring sequel and another Pirate sequel. And uh, What is it like to look at some of these things that you've helped birth in this country move on without you? I think it's it's fine. I think it's healthy. I think you, you know, there's a, for me personally, that there's a point, and I, I felt like there was a, you know, to do three Pirates of the Caribbean movies was kind of the perfect uh, journey for me because it was more to do than just one uh, in terms of learning and growth and 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 exploring and trying different things but after that it's like um you you get to a place like i don't i can't learn anymore from this i can't there's no more personal growth and then if it becomes some sort of you know financial equation it's not you know it's just not appealing mm-hmm. i don't think it's the, i'd rather sell real estate for a living or something i want to go back a little bit in your career and how you got started. But before we talk about that, I'm curious what it's like to be to be 10 films into a largely major studio auteur kind of career, which is an increasingly uncommon thing. You know, you've talked about the way that the middle has been crunched. Is it diff- more difficult than ever to find the kind of project that you want to do that you feel good about that can still go for 40 or 50 or $60 million? Sure. I mean, it's it's, you know, the byproduct of of trying to, you know, the, the difficult task of getting people to get in their car and pay too much for popcorn and drive to, drive to a movie theater is creating that sort of, that eventizing of that experience. That's consequently driving away good writers predominantly and, and, and people of talent towards the television. I mean, we're benefiting from Amazon and Netflix, you know, battling it out. And the, 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 the need for so much content has allowed really great stuff to, to, you know, on your, on your box at home, you know, there, there are more and more reasons not to go to the movie theater because there's, there's good long form. Um, so yeah, it's like a self-fulfilling negative prophecy. I mean, you, 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 you can, you can feel, it's like you, you can feel the fabric ripping and, and you, you know, once it starts, it's really hard to stop. Is there any part of you that wants to get into that long form game, the way things are changing? Sure. I think that's, that's inevitable if, if, if we keep going this, this way, that it's, um, yeah, because you, you, I, I mean, I love the kind of the, the getting, you know, sitting around a fire and telling a story, right? The sort of campfire aspect. And there's something greater than the sum of its parts when you get a bunch of strangers in a darkened room. And certainly your movie's never going to look or sound better than that experience. Um, but you, you see the kind of, collapsing of your second act and which are typically your your that's generally your your problem with your movie is usually your second act um whereas it's an asset in you know the 13 episode mm-hmm. um uh, long form uh so yeah they're just different types of narrative are unfolding more um more literate you know i want to ask you about your career 
and how you got started. I honestly don't know very much about it. I know you're a musician, you're from Tennessee, and you started directing music videos. Is that, how, how did that happen? <laughs> wow, that's a, that's, I just, you just, like, I just went, oh yeah, I was from Tennessee, I was a musician. Yeah, Although, all uh, those things true? Uh, yeah, well, I was born in Tennessee. My father was a nuclear physicist, and um, but I grew up in San Diego, and then I was playing in a lot of bands and went moved to L.A. and went to UCLA Film School, but was also playing music and um, directing music videos for, for you know, uh, bands like Bad Religion and L7 and, you know, literally making, you know, working as a PA and after film school at a company called Limelight Productions. And it was like right at the, right when MTV was kind of blowing up. So there were opportunities, um, you know, to, to jump into music videos and then from there to commercials and then to, to features. How do you make that jump from, you know, you made a handful of very iconic commercials, especially in a time when there were a lot of aspiring filmmakers who were using commercials as a real springboard. How do you make that transition from maintaining the tone of the commercials that you set, which was you know, fairly unique, you know, the the 100 foot tall Michael Jordan, uh, uh, Air Jordan commercial is very famous. How do you translate that to something like your first film, Mouse Hunt, and, and say you, that this is my style? Yeah, you don't. It's the, <laughs> you really can't. That's the danger. I mean, you really have to take off that hat. That that, you know, trying to outwow or convey, you know, come up with a vehicle that conveys a 30 second idea that has to, you know, that's going to play in between a Chevy truck commercial and, you know, uh, a Nike spot. You know, that that is, you're putting everything, condensing everything into this one little piece of marketing. Um, so you can't approach a film like that at all. You're, you're, you're running a marathon now. You, it's a completely different, um, you have to leave all that behind you. And, and I think there's value in kind of, certainly from, from music videos, and, and there's value to to moving into commercials and getting the means to to learn the craft, um, you know, instead of, you know, it's not quite as low budget. But I also did a short film before I, I tackled a feature just because it's a different language. Did you specifically take things that you learned in the commercial space? Like I, there's some perspectives that you see, say, in, a, in an Intel commercial or in a Levi's commercial where, like, you know, the camera is sitting underneath something that you don't usually see a camera sitting underneath and say, I know I know, I want to put this picture inside of a movie, or is it, does it depend on the project that you're working on? The style you can, you can use in a, in a, you know, again, you're sort of trying to outwow these 30-second bursts. Um, so you're, you're deploying, you know, extreme versions of style um, in that space. And I think that doesn't work. You really don't want to wear the wrong dress to the party when you're, when you're, you know, composing a movie. Um, in the case of a cure for wellness, there is a you know is trying to find that the right balance where you're like there's something in the frame that feels um, intentional or feels like something inevitable is occurring that that the protagonist maybe is is oblivious to. That requires um, sure a commitment to to a, to a, to a style, but you don't want to um, you're not competing against you know uh, something adja- immediately adjacent to you. You have time. Uh, and I th- and I think you'd be thrown off the rails if you started to to get sort of too wonky with that. In the new film, you know, you're obviously a very seasoned and confident filmmaker, and you know how to establish tone and look and style. When you're making a, a handful of jumps in the early stages of your career, Mouse Hunt, The Mexican, you know, those two movies don't have a lot in common. Do you know that you want to be able to jump around stylistically, or is it because you are trying to get 
the best possible job that you are making that transition. Every movie is a learning experience. You know, there are lessons you learn. I think there was probably 40 minutes on the floor of the editing room from Mouse Hunt. Um, you know, just com completely, you know, st overly storyboarded the, the movie and, and um, sort of obsessive. Um, and then tried to kind of swing the, completely the other direction on the Mexican and like, let's keep it loose. And I don't want to, I don't want to like, uh, and, and there, there are sort of, you know, and, and everybody was saying that, you know, it's such a great script. And, you know, and you didn't, you sort of stopped working on the script in a way. And, you know, there are lessons from that. And it's like, okay, the next one, like, I'm never going to stop working on the script. And, I, you know, I am going to have, a, you know, a, a, a more defined plan. And there's less and less waste. You know, you kind of, you get to the editing room and you're like, oh, it's, there's only five minutes of the movie that you've cut out. Or you kind of, um, you get, as you're, as you're working on the screenplay, you start to get a sense of, of, you know the lessons of the past you're, you're bringing to bear, but they're different for each, for each genre and for each uh, for each narrative. You strike me as a very um, thoughtful and calm person, and oftentimes people who have to oversee a massive production like Pirates or The Lone Ranger can be a bit brusque and intense and loud. How do you how do you command and maintain a set? I just try to c communicate to everybody. I'm not like I don't try to like hide anything in terms of, I will set t tell you if I don't know the answer to a question yet. Um, uh, I, I'm not trying to protect some vision, you know, I'm going to share it with everybody and, and communicate that. So I usually, be, you know, at the beginning of the day, I'll, I'll have my, I have like a four foot piece of foam core with all the shots drawn out on the day in the way they're going to edit. So um, it's not a shot list. It's not coverage. It's like, this is these are the this is the mosaic. These are the pieces of the puzzle we are getting today. And then I'll um, I'll put like a blue and red sharpie around them for like lighting directions and say we're going to turn around at three in the afternoon and you know or in the morning we're shooting this direction and then um, you know we want to get out of the way so the grips can lay you know thirty feet of dolly track and then we'll shoot this piece. And so you're you're kind of assembling a sort of you're in triage mode once you start the production. Um, and it's really important to have a kind of very specific plan. And, you know, my, my, my wife always says, you're, you're no longer the architect, you're the contractor when I start a movie, you know, because there's all that planning and then it's just you're in kind of execution mode. What do you do? Do you build a Bible or a dossier ahead of time and, and share with people and say, this is what is going to happen precisely? Sure, I try, to, I try to be very accurate in, certainly in terms of budgeting and planning and saying this is really important. and. Things, events occur. You know, you have weather, or we on the on the cure for wellness. The stage caught on fire, and we burned down our entire set and the stage. It's um, a nice uh, reflection so of some of the storytelling. Like, there was like exactly there was like a three month, de, uh, or no, uh, I think it was like six week delay to kind of move the sets and reconstruct, salvage what we could, and come back. Um, so you, you 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 those curves happen, and you you adjust. But I try to say. This is the movie we're we're telling, so that everybody who is involved in in you know in, in resource management, there's no fiscal decision that isn't a creative decision ultimately, and and you kind of want to squeeze as much as you can and, and say this is going to be on screen, and that's why we're here, and um, and sometimes it's as simple as like protecting that the, this is a really emotional scene. I want it really quiet. I want to. You know, that's why we're shooting in this location is to protect the performance or other, you know, you're, you're balancing all those things. And 
you certainly don't want to be distracted if there's, you know, you've, you've gotten there early in the morning, you've, you've put 400 pirates through wardrobe and they're swinging between, you know, between two ships and you're out in the ocean. But that's the background to somebody in the close to camera, you know, emoting or, or performing and you want to make, there's a mantra which is all movies are small, you know, and you try to, you try to maintain that. You try to say, look, let's, let's make this, because the performance is at the end of the day, everything. Um, so you, the more you can plan all that stuff, the less it's, it's in the way, or the less it feels like it's a distraction. It's a very interesting paradox you described. Every creative decision being a fiscal decision, and vice versa in some respects. Is it painful for you or difficult if something that you work hard on doesn't do well fiscally, even if you feel good about it creatively? Sure. I mean, yeah. I think that you just you want you want to be able to do it again. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want your movies to lose money that doesn't that's not good for anybody um but i do you know i may be naive but i do feel that maybe even if they can't articulate it that an audience wants something new um you know that sure the data may say they don't but i i feel like you know chasing yesterday's trends is 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 not ultimately a wise financial decision in the long run we are going to need new IP. You know, it used to be our job to make the IP, right? There was, you know, E.T. wasn't a, you know, a board game before it was a movie. You know, it was a movie. And then you, you, you had toys and dolls and all that stuff. So, you know, there was somehow the whole thing's become inverted because it's, you know, people are so uh, adverse to risk and, you know, relying on the data. But the data collection itself is going to rely on what worked yesterday. Yeah, I, I remember around the time of Rango, you said that d- data is killing us specifically with regard to making films. This movie, in a lot of ways, feels like a reaction to that too. Sure, I think you need. You know, I was very fortunate to to have a financier in Arnon Milshan, who is sort of one of the last um, people working in this industry with an intuitive, you know, with some sense of a gut instinct, and um, you know, the, the the heads of all the studios used to have that. You know, but it, it's it's like now, and you know, I think when you know Amy Pas- when we lost Amy Pascal, we lost you know another one. It's like that you know, it's rare to find a person in that position who loves movies. You know, usually if you go around and you ask people, it's like I hate this business. You know, <laughs> I hate movies. It's like, you know, because it's it isn't it is a you know it's a crazy business. Right. Um, but you you want to find a partner. Certainly, if you're a director, you want to find a partner. When it comes down to it, you can you can argue a point with somebody, and the person across the table is like a fan of film. It's an unbelievable thing. I think that's why there's so much attrition too, because you have a lot of people who don't love it enough to stick around. Sure, I I, I think if you if you're just in it for the business, there are easier and 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 and, and more satisfying ways to to make money. You know. Let's talk about Rango really quickly, uh, probably one of my 10 favorite films of all time. Um, how do you look back on that movie now? You won an Oscar for it. It was you know, financially successful. You talked a little bit when we were speaking earlier about wanting to do it because you had not done an animated film before and you wanted to t- take on a new chance. I'm curious specifically about that movie, but also about all your movies. If you go back and look at the things that you've done and, and try to reflect on them at all. Sure. I think that there's a, there was a spirit there. Um, it's that kind of don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness mentality, right? You don't, there was never a point where 
we were asking for permission to make that movie. I pitched it to, to John Logan, and then John Logan and I pitched it to Graham King, and Graham King, we needed some some startup money, and he gave us some startup money, and then I had six artists in, in my house in, in, in La Cañada, and we were just working every day in this little ranch house, and um, we spent 18 months on the story reel, just recording voices uh, on, a, on a Mac, and um, there was never a moment where we thought well, this wasn't going to happen, and then we... Um, we brought in, you know, a bunch of studios to look at all the art, and, and I called Johnny and sort of took him to the story, and he said, "Yeah, lizard, I'm in." And then, um, you know, um, yeah, that was kind of an interesting time, and I think, you know, they needed product immediately, and we had this thing that was teed up. So, and then, but none, the storyboard artists, storyboard artists I used had not really worked on animated movies. The certain, certainly all the guys that I used for creature design are more from live action. We ended up doing the final animation at ILM, who had never made an animated movie. So it was nice to kind of, all, all the people who were saying, you can't do that, you don't do it like this. And when we were recording the voices, I wanted everybody in the room and we were chasing them around with a boom mic and just sort of saying, well, we're, we're going to make it the way I know how to make it, not the way somebody else does it, not to disvalue that. I think that everybody has an approach. So I guess the, the the long answer to your question is, yeah, you try to get back to that feeling of like, well, what are we doing next? And then you're just doing it. If you have to tell a story, you'll figure out a way, even if you have to do like sock puppets, you know, and, a, yeah, and, it's and an iPhone. It's amazing to hear you describe making a movie like creating a startup company. You know, often it's a, it seems a lot different than that from the outside to a lot of people. So how do you move forward from something as unique as a cure for wellness and figure out your next project? Does it have to be completely different for you, a new company? Yeah. I mean, I mean, pretty much. I mean, I've got, there were four or five things right now that were pushed to the back burner because, you know, the cure submarine was, was going under for, you know, two years. Um, so we're resurfacing and, and those are all going to come forward and, you know, that, that same approach will be used. And then, you know, it's like, one of them will become ripe and it becomes apparent pretty quickly like oh this feels like this is going to happen next and for all the right reasons or and usually it's it has nothing to do with the financing at that point it's like because you've kind of feel like you've figured it out Gore thank you very much for joining me today A Cure for Wellness is out February 17th I appreciate the time thank you very much great to see you